0: When we think about the big religious questions, when you know the kind of things you go to that are most foundational, you might think of what is God like? What you know? What makes God happy? And what does it mean to sort of truly be accepted and belong to God? These these kinds of questions kind of get to the root of of the world religions, how the different religions answer these questions is where you see their their differences. In this morning's passage, we see Jesus tackle these questions, and we see him do so in a conversation, you might even say a, a confrontation, with people who purported to be religious experts. It seems we might say that based just on this passage, that the the more expert you claim to be about religion, the more likely you are to be wrong about these crucial questions. Jesus, here in Luke chapter 15, is going to confront some people called Pharisees, religious experts, very careful in their piety. He's going to challenge their thoughts. Well, What is God like? What makes God happy? And what does it mean to be part of God's family? To begin with, I just want to read the first two verses to get introduced to some of the main characters in this passage. This is Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. You'll find this on page 874 of the Bibles provided. Listen to God's word from Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners we're all drawing near to hear him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. In this passage we're about to read, we're going to see a collection of three parables. Three parables that are all about things lost and found. But to understand those parables, we need to First, pay attention to these people that are introduced here. So we have Jesus, who's not named, but he's there. He's, he's eating with these people in the first group that are called tax collectors and sinners. And then in verse 2, they're just called sinners. I mean, that, that sounds pretty rude to us to just label any group. Hey, those are the sinners over there. Jesus is eating at the sinner's table today. But Luke is just recording a kind of a plain fact of the way these people were seen in their culture, that they were people who didn't care to observe God's law, and they likely included the people that come to your mind when you think of a group of sinners. There were probably some thieves in there and some sexual sinners. Specifically in this group was a group of people that were called tax collectors, and they merit special attention because they were Jewish people who were in league with the Roman government. And their, their work was often uh, extortionary work. They were, they were using their positions of tax collecting to get extra money for themselves and enrich themselves. They were kind of double sinners. They're traitors to the Jewish cause and they're thieves. So that, that gives you kind of a flavor of this group that Jesus is eating with. The second group of people here are these people called the Pharisees and scribes. And these are those religious leaders I was talking about. They, they were people who were experts in God's law. They were what we might call the religious conservatives of Jesus' day. They were known for taking special care and in their religious practices. They even had extra traditions that they added to kind of help them avoid keeping, uh, breaking God's law. So they were, they were very careful people. The scribes were specially trained copyists of the scriptures. So they would have had special training on how to copy the Hebrew scrolls to preserve God's word from one generation to the next. They probably had memorized large chunks of of the Bible, even down to words and letters. And they were especially expert in the Old Testament. uh, The first five books of the Old Testament, that's called the Law or the Torah. So that's the two groups, but what's most important about them is not just who they are, but what they were doing. You might say the verbs that are attached to them in Luke 15, 1 and 2. So this group of sinners, Jesus tells us, uh, the, the, Luke tells us, were drawing near to hear Jesus. Now, that may not sound like a very important detail, but in Luke, hearing Jesus matters a lot. So early on in Luke, Jesus told a parable of the, 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 the four soils or the parable of the sower. And the, the punchline of that parable was that the, the good soil, the fruit-bearing soil, those who he, are hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. All right, so, so hearing and listening and obeying the word of Christ is vital. Again, Jesus announces a blessing in chapter 11 on those who hear the word of God and keep it. Then at the end of chapter 10, there's the the famous story of Mary and Martha. You know, Martha is toiling away. She's anxious about many things, while her sister Mary is just sitting there listening to Jesus' teaching. And when Martha goes to complain about this, Jesus says, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. He commends her for sitting and listening to his word. So, a desire to hear Jesus' word in Luke, coming near on purpose to hear him, is a symbol for faith. So, these people are called sinners, but they're the sinners who want to hear Jesus. And Jesus, for his part, the Pharisees and the scribes say, he's happy to receive these people and eat with them. He accepts them. So, we might say these. This group of sinners are not only sinners, they're, they're repenting and believing sinners. They're sinners who've come to hear the word of Christ. But what about the scribes and Pharisees? What do we see them doing here? They're grumbling. And this isn't really just to help us see that they're cranky people, that's not the point. Uh, grumbling is actually another one of these loaded words. So in the Old Testament, when Israel had been delivered from slavery in Egypt, they were wandering in the wilderness. Immediately, they grumble. The same word in Greek translates, you know, Hebrew word, it's, it's they're grumbling. They're grumbling that God's brought them out to the wilderness and he hasn't provided them enough food and water. They grumble about Moses and Aaron's leadership and they do this over and over again. Every time there's a hardship, they grumble, they complain, and they say, well, we should have just go back to Egypt. It's better to be slaves under evil Pharaoh than to be stuck out in the wilderness with, with Moses and Aaron. But in Exodus 16.8, Moses rebukes them very clearly, and he tells them that their grumbling about his and Aaron's leadership is not about him and Aaron at all. He says they are grumbling against the Lord himself. And so here we are fast forwarding, you know, several hundred years, you know, centuries ahead, and what do we find God's people doing? They're grumbling. Grumbling against the Lord's servant. Do they know who they're grumbling against? Specifically, what they're grumbling about is that Jesus is eating with these people. So there it seems maybe standing outside or around this feast watching it happen and they're they're complaining that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. Again, this may seem like an insignificant detail. Although, if you give some thought to it, you probably, you know, are pretty careful about who you have dinner with, right? You want want to be careful about committing to a dinner with somebody that you don't know well. Uh, It might might be like one of those sales pitches where you're going to be there for three hours to hear about a timeshare in Conroe or something like that. But in this culture, sharing a meal was especially significant because to share a meal, especially for the scribes and Pharisees, was a way to express your religious and moral approval of them. So the scribes and Pharisees would only eat with someone who they thought was righteous, someone who they thought was religiously acceptable, and they would be very careful not to eat with someone who they thought was unclean or a sinner. And this is especially notable in our context because back in chapter 14, Jesus had had dinner at a ruler of the Pharisees' house. So even though the Pharisees you know, aren't quite sure about Jesus and they're trying to trap him, at least on some level, by having him to dinner, they're kind of saying, Jesus, we acknowledge you. We're kind of letting you into our club. At least for now, we're going to treat you like you're righteous and acceptable in God's eyes. Like you're one of us. But it's a big problem that Jesus sort of leaves this righteous and respectable dinner party And shows up at a dinner for sinners. Maybe he's hosting it. It says he receives them, right? See, the Pharisees and scribes, they thought that they had the right to judge who is and is not acceptable to God. They saw themselves as being part of the family, part of the kingdom of God. And sinners as being out. And that there should be some strict barriers built between the righteous and the unrighteous. And they thought that Jesus should fall in line with them. He should be like all right-thinking people. I think it's fair to say they thought Jesus should have felt honored to be invited to their dinner party. They believed that if Jesus was truly righteous, he's going to behave like them. He's going to follow their norms in choosing his dinner companions. If Jesus had done that, he would have affirmed the Pharisees that they really were righteous. But the fact that Jesus feels free on one night to eat with Pharisees and scribes and the next night or another night to eat with sinners is deeply troubling to the Pharisees because it shows them that Jesus, this this righteous miracle worker who teaches with authority and is proclaiming the kingdom of God, this guy, this man, he's working from a completely different set of ideas about who God is and who is acceptable to God. And that disturbs them. So this morning we're going to look at this passage divided up into two big parts. Part one is to look at the first two lost and found parables and to see that God rejoices over repentant sinners. That's part one. God rejoices over repentant sinners. And then in part two we're going to look at God as the compassionate father. As we look at this third parable about the man with two sons, we'll see that God is the compassionate father. He's more compassionate than we can fathom. And this blows up the ideas that these religious people had about who God is and what makes him happy and what it means to be in his family. So let's read these first two parables, beginning in verse 3, down through verse 10. These are both short little stories about things lost and found, and you'll note they have a lot of repetition in them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, God rejoices over repentant sinners. So we're getting at these questions. What is God like? What makes God happy? God rejoices over repentant sinners. It says, God and the angels of heaven rejoice that the lost are found. In both parables, something important is lost. One out of a hundred sheep, one out of ten coins. And in both cases, the owner pursues them diligently, he searches or she searches for the lost item, and when it's found, rejoicing happens, right? And it's not just private joy, it's not just a a private prayer, it's, you know, the neighbors are called, rejoice with me. Maybe maybe they break out, you know, that food they've been saving, and they have a party. In both cases, Jesus uses this human joy that we can all relate to, to say, "There's, there's more joy in heaven than that. These little cases of lost and found that you can understand are just dim pictures of what God is like. How he celebrates when a lost sinner repents. Well, this week we had a case of lost and found. We, we found out we'd lost Jacob and my baseball gloves. We had no idea where they were. And we looked all over the house and the cars, and finally we kind of thought they well, must be at the baseball fields. And probably the last time we had them was like ten days ago. We've been bad little leaguers and hadn't played catch at home, so we didn't realize they were gone. And lo and behold, we went to the field yesterday and opened up the lost and found box, and there they were, lost and found. Right? There's a little a little joy, but we were so thankful not to have to go buy a new baseball glove. Right? It's a tiny picture we can all understand, but God says He rejoices when he finds a lost sinner consider how this challenges the pharisees theology right they said well god's a judge and he approves of those who are righteous like we are in their mind the thing that makes god happy is when the rules are kept when the the sturdy fences are built between the right and the wrong, between the righteous and the unrighteous, that is what makes God happy. That's what God is like. But what does Jesus say God's like? Like a shepherd who leaves the 99 to pursue the lost sheep. Like this woman diligently searching after her her precious coin, a, a day's wages, a tenth of all she saved... In this view, Jesus' view, God's not staying behind a fence with the righteous. He's he's going over every boundary, searching the house up and down, lighting the lamp until he finds what's lost. And this leads to rejoicing in heaven. Heaven rejoices. God is happy when sinners repent. When they come to the end of themselves and say, I've sinned, I deserve your judgment, God. Forgive me. What good news these parables are to lost sinners. I mean, can you imagine being one of the sinners who's come to dinner with Jesus? Wouldn't you be wondering silently in your heart, do I really belong here? If Jesus really knew what I was up to last week, if he really knew whose bed I woke up in this morning, would he really have me here? you might think, I should probably slip out before question and answer time, you know? But these parables from Jesus tell us that God is a God who seeks lost people. He seeks sinners. And he rejoices more over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. The sinners who heard these words would know there is hope for me. As guilty as I am, as stained and dirty as I am, if I repent of my sins, if I believe the words I've drawn near to hear, there's hope. I can belong here because God is a gracious God. He rejoices over the repentant. But the end of that first parable, where Jesus talks about the, the one who repents versus the 99 who don't need to, that'd be really jarring to the Pharisees. I mean, I, I could imagine them getting on board with, with repenters. Oh, that's good. We want unrighteous people to become righteous, and, and especially if they go through the right rituals and they do the right washings and go to the priests. That's great. But why does he have to take this dig at the righteous? You know, that, that was just unnecessary, Jesus, right? You could have said that one thing without being mean to us. I mean, by comparison, the Pharisees did appear righteous, and they saw themselves as law keepers. But Jesus uses the, the righteous who need no repentance as his point of contrast. And he says heaven's joy is for the, the one who repents more than the 99. And these parables actually repeat something that happened in real life with Jesus and these same Pharisees and scribes, or at least a similar group, in Luke chapter 5. In that chapter, call—I mean, uh, Jesus calls one of these tax collectors, Levi, to be one of his disciples. And then Levi, in celebration, throws a great feast at his house, and he invites Jesus, it's for Jesus. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with, and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." The scribes and Pharisees think that they're well. They don't need a physician. They don't need a doctor. Whatever their sin is, it's not a very big deal. They have no deep need of grace. God is happy with them because they've kept the rules, they think. But Jesus here is turning their religious world upside down. In chapter 5, he says... He didn't come for people who consider themselves righteous, who don't need healing, who don't need to repent. If anything, here in chapter 15, he's ramping things up. He's not just saying why he came or didn't come. He's saying heaven has no joy over the righteous one who needs no repentance, over the one who doesn't need Jesus. So unless things, you know, in case things are unclear, he's making it clear now unless you repent and believe in Christ, you have no place in God's family. What gets you a place in God's family is not your rule-keeping and righteousness. It's not your knowledge of the Bible. It's your faith in Christ. There's no joy in heaven over those who have no need of Jesus. But there is great rejoicing when one lost sinner is found and repents. When we read this story, it's natural to want to be on Jesus' side, right? The Pharisees and scribes, they clearly have the black hats on. Jesus is the white hat. You know, we're on team Jesus. But before we so quickly identify as the good guys, we have to ask, do we rejoice in repentance the way that God does? Isn't it true? We would rather be right than be repentant. We like the idea of Jesus forgiving sin, but we'd rather avoid needing forgiveness if we could. Isn't it easy to think that way? Now, we should pursue righteousness. We should strive to be holy and avoid sin. But here's where we fall into the rut of the Pharisees and scribes we imagine that such a holy and righteous life is a life in which repenting is rare. So we say, well, to be holy and righteous means you're not really confessing sin all that much. But Jesus wants us to see when we find ourselves thinking that, you know, I don't really have much to confess to God these days. I haven't done much wrong. I'm doing pretty well. We're telling on ourselves when we think that way. We are believing in the false righteousness of the Pharisees. Repentance is both the righteous way to respond to sin and a pathway to righteousness. Just think about what happens when you confess your sin to other people, when you have to own something that you've done wrong. It's humbling, isn't it? I think it it gives you a a taste for not doing it again. Uh, And similarly, when we confess our sin to God, When we name our sin and we say, Lord, it was wrong for me to speak that way, to look at that person, to take that thing. We are killing the pride that's at the root of sin. We're we're owning what we've done. But we're also bringing joy to God, who delights when those who are lowly in heart come and confess their sin to him. The way that sinners fellowship with our Savior is by repenting and receiving his forgiveness. So yes, grow in righteousness, fight sin, but grow in repentance as well. When we repent, when we're honest with God about how we've done wrong and about what we deserve, we bring glory to God. We, we take the spotlight off of us And we put the spotlight where it belongs on the grace of Jesus Christ who came to seek sinners, who came to heal those who were sick with sin. But when we minimize sin, when repentance is rare, we glorify ourselves in our own righteousness. Jesus helps us here identify a way that we can know whether we are really rejoicing in repentance. And that's by thinking about our attitude towards other sinners. I mean, that's the way the Pharisees and scribes self-righteousness is exposed here, right? They grumbled that Jesus ate with sinners, and this shows their real belief about sin and grace. Because what they're really saying is, we don't need as much grace and forgiveness as those people. Jesus, don't you dare put us in their category, put us in the category of sinner, that's what Jesus' is eating was doing. He's only eating with sinners. Pharisees who were sinners and sinners who were sinners. And this, is, this is true for us too, right? We, we rarely say, you rarely meet someone who's just so brash to say, I have absolutely nothing in my life that's wrong. I've made no mistakes. I've done no sin. Like, that's very rare. But it's really common to say, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that guy. I don't need as much forgiveness as them. The Pharisees and scribes had that kind of doctrine of sin. They believed they sinned, but they believed their debts were small. They only needed a, a small dose of Christ's medicine, a little bit of forgiveness. Forgiveness. I've talked a lot about the Pharisees and scribes and their blindness and self-righteousness in this first point, but we have to come back to the fact that these parables are mostly focused on the joy of God in receiving repentant sinners. And I think this shows us something really important about Jesus' tactic for winning grumblers. He doesn't get right up in their face, but he shows them what makes God happy. These two short, lost and found parables are a plea to self-righteous grumblers. Look at the joy that God has in receiving the repentant. Look at the joyful God who forgives sinners. Look at the joyful God who seeks and saves the lost. This is a call and a plea to to stop clinging to self-righteousness to lay down our condescending judgments of others and repent and enter into heaven's joy. Now, if these two parables stood alone, they would be full of good news for sinners. They would be a, a rebuke to self-righteous grumblers, but they aren't alone. They're actually kind of a setup to the third parable. There's kind of this, in, this narrowing, increasing intensity of these three parables because we go from one out of a hundred things lost to one out of ten things lost. And then the third parable is going to begin with, there was a man who had two sons, and we're primed for him to lose one of the sons. What's more precious than that? These two sons, the the younger one we call the prodigal, because of the way he goes off and spends all his father's wealth on reckless living. But there's the older son, too the one who receives his inheritance but stays home. And these three parables in succession invite us to ask, well, what about the other son, the son who doesn't go off and spend everything? It allows Jesus to give the story a kind of twist. Was that son lost? Is he found? With that I mean, let's read the last parable and see that God is a compassionate Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, if we were to stop the parable at verse 24, with the younger son's restoration, we would see this is just falling in line with the other two parables. Something is lost and found again, we see repentance. We see the, the younger son you know, asking for his inheritance and going off and spending it, but then comes to himself and receives forgiveness from his father. We see the father in the parable is very much like the shepherd and the woman looking for her coin. Jesus presents him as if he's regularly on the lookout for the son, because he sees him a long way off, and he, he runs, and he goes out and embraces him. And running wasn't something that respectable old men did in this culture. And when he meets the son and the son begins his speech, the son can't even finish before the father has decided, I'm restoring you. I'm not going to hear anything about you not being a son. I'm going to put on the best robe and put a ring on your finger and we're going to kill the the calf that we've been saving and fattening up for special occasions. It's time to uncork that thing. The father orders this huge feast and, and you don't kill a fattened calf for a small party, right? This is Everybody's invited. The whole household, maybe all the neighbors come and they rejoice and celebrate. Once again, the message to sinners is a message of great grace. I mean, this this younger son has sinned in ways that I don't think any father among us would be able to easily forgive. He's took something like a third of his father's wealth. He's abandoned the family and he's lost all the money. So, thinking in terms of the Ten Commandments, he did not honor his parents. He he acted covetously and greedily. And yet, when he returns, his father is full of compassion and forgiveness. The son would have settled for being a servant, and the father has no time for that. Give him the robe, give him the ring. He is my son. He restores him fully. I mean, this, this is compassion so great, again, we can't comprehend it. And it's a picture of God's compassion. Late Pastor Tim Keller wrote a book that he called The Prodigal God about this parable. And he explains what he means like this. The word prodigal does not mean wayward, but according to Merriam-Webster's collegiate dictionary, recklessly spendthrift. It means to spend until you have nothing left. This term is therefore as appropriate for describing the father in the story as his younger son. The father's welcome was literally reckless because he refused to reckon or count the son's sin against him or demand repayment. He's given away all that he has and he just spends more to welcome the son back. The father has so much love for the son that he just gives and gives. When this father sees the son, he's full of compassion. And that's why he runs to meet him and start this celebration. So go back to those first questions that we asked. What is God like? Is he the angry judge? Waiting to thunder down with you were wrong, pay your dues? He's the father who's full of compassion. He runs to cover sinners with Christ's righteousness. When Jesus describes the father this way, as an image of God's own compassion, it's important to see Jesus is not inventing something new. So if you've kind of heard the idea that the Old Testament God is the angry, you know, judging God and the New Testament God is gracious, that's completely false. Just one example is to listen to David in Psalm 103. Speaking of God, he says, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion toward those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Don't we see that in this father? He knows how pitiful his son is, he showers him with compassion. When God wants us to know what he's like, he says, I'm like a compassionate father running out to cover your sin with my grace. It's forgiveness that we can't comprehend. It's so gracious. We deserve the complete opposite. I mean, don't we know this about ourselves? We've been given so much by God, right? To, To be alive is to be blessed, It's to receive God's grace, just to be created and to be sustained, and and even more so if you if you have a you know a prosperous lifestyle. And yet, what have we done with our Maker's gifts? God made us. What have we done with His gifts? I mean, haven't we all done what the prodigal did? We've just taken everything we've gotten and we've we've spent it on ourselves. And so we we do that, and sometimes we come to the end of ourselves. And when we come to God in Christ, what does he do? He doesn't say, well, you spent all your inheritance. There's no more for you. Christ gave himself. He gave his own life as payment for our sins. That's what Jesus dying on the cross is all about. The God who has given us so much gives the life of his very son, to pay for our sin. And if our faith is in what Christ has done. Then he doesn't deal with us like we deserve. He doesn't deal with us according to our sin. He deals with us according to Christ's righteousness. And Christ's sacrifice. This is the great compassion of God the Father. It's revealed to you in Jesus Christ. In his death on the cross. Have you received this compassion Are you living in the joy of a repentant and forgiven child of God? What's keeping you from that joy? So again, this third parable is like the first two. A lost and found parable that ends in a celebration. A promise of God's abundant grace and compassion to everyone who repents. That's who God is. He's the compassionate Father. But this parable is also not like the other two. Because though it does end in a celebration there's someone who's not joining in. The father has two sons remember and this older son who we know has also received his inheritance, right? Verse 12 says that the father divided the inheritance between them. He has received his inheritance and probably the double share because he's the older one so he's, he's probably got all the property and the livestock and he's there with the father but he's decided to stay behind and do the honorable thing. He's out in the fields when the younger brother returns and he comes back and finds the news. And we read in verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in when he heard about the celebration. I mean, this is the exact opposite of the father, right? The father was full of compassion. He wanted to celebrate. The older son's angry, hanging back. We see he's full of resentment. The older son in the story mirrors what the Pharisees are are doing as they're hearing this parable, right? There's a feast going on between Jesus and sinners, and they're hanging back angry, grumbling about it. They're grumbling about Jesus' treatment of these sinners. The older son is angry and grumbling about the father's treatment of this son of his. As Peter Williams points out, the older son does not use any relationship words about himself and his family. So when the younger son repeatedly addresses his father as father. He thinks about him as his father when he's alone with the pigs. And when he comes back, he says father. He says father a bunch of times. But the older son, when the father entreats him, he goes out to the, you know, the father leaves the feast and comes out and says, please come in. This is what the older son says to his dad. Look, these many years I've served you, I never disobeyed, and you never gave me a young goat. You might want to add in, so much as a young goat that I can celebrate with my friends. And he doesn't talk about his brother. right? This son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf. He doesn't relate to his father as father, or his brother as brother. And he sees his relationship purely in terms of obedience and, and service. Like he's a hired servant who's just been toiling away on the, the farm. So as much as we rightly criticize the younger brother and his sin, that that younger brother abandoned the family literally, this older brother seems to have functionally abandoned the family. He's there and he's present, but he doesn't want to feast with his dad. If anything, he he wants his inheritance so he can spend it on himself and have a party with his friends. He's like the ones in Jeremiah who honored God with their lips, but their heart was far from him. Jesus does something very clever in this parable to add extra punch to his audience. These scribes and Pharisees knew the Old Testament so well, and though we probably can't see it, Jesus loads up this parable with with textual allusions and key words to many of the stories of Genesis. Stories that the scribes had copied. So there's allusions to Abraham and in Genesis 18, who, who runs quickly to prepare the fattened calf when he's hosting the three angels, one of whom is the Lord himself. There's allusions to Judah and Tamar, because there we have a, a robe and a ring and a young goat. And there's allusions to the Joseph story, who's identified as a special son with a robe. But the, the most uh, pressing and clear allusion is to Jacob and Esau a man with two sons who argued over inheritance and the younger son steals the inheritance and goes away to a far country where he keeps livestock and then he returns. And Jeff explained it really well. That younger son, Jacob, is coming back afraid of what's going to happen. He sees Esau there with the 400 men and thinks, well, it's about to go down, you know, and he he makes these preparations to protect some of what he has. But then when Esau sees Jacob, he doesn't attack. He ran out to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, again, this is Esau we're talking about. You know, and, and when Esau is mentioned, it's, it's usually bad. Like he's usually an enemy of God's people and his descendants are a persistent enemy of God's people. But he's the one here in Genesis, in Genesis 33 who's, who's showing Jacob the face of God. The face of God's great grace and forgiveness. And Jesus intentionally makes the father in the story resemble Esau. And he does this as a way to kind of put his finger on the Pharisees' hearts and say, Even Esau forgave his brother. Even Esau was joyful to receive the lost son back. Was Esau more righteous than you? Was he more gracious than you? Did he love repentance more than you, Pharisees? And then this, I think, is where we see the, the prodigal nature of God most clearly. I mean, but this point in Luke, these, these people, these Pharisees and scribes are part of that number who have been plotting to catch Jesus in some way to hurt him and arrest him. The wheels are turning for his death. But Jesus wants them to repent. Look at what the words Jesus puts in the mouth of the father to the older son. He begins by saying son, but it's the Greek word child. It's full of affection. Child, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and found. The father's compassion is so great It extends even to the self-righteous. It extends even to this one who can't bring himself to say the words father and brother. This one who thinks he's been toiling away in obedient servitude. Do you feel like that? You've just been working for God and you're not getting anything back from him. To people like that, the father says, I've been sharing my abundance with you all along. I have always been a gracious God who loves to save. Jesus draws near to these unrepentant and self-righteous people and he says to them, here's who I have always been, a gracious God who's come to seek and save the lost and you are lost, is what he wants them to know. The great punchline of the parable is to the scribes and Pharisees to show them, you are sinners too. It's a harsh reality, but it's good news. Because if you know yourself to be a sinner, then Jesus is for you. Like many of Jesus' confrontations and interactions, this one in Luke ends in no good, tidy resolution. Like we know what happens to the younger son, but this older son is, we're just left standing here with his father having said these words about celebrating. We don't know what he does. Did he repent of his anger and come in? Or did he remain outside grumbling? What will you do? This parable asks us Do you know that you're lost? And you, you may be lost like the younger son. You may be lost in such a way that your life is a mess. Your sin and shame are just out there. Everyone can see it. Or you might be lost like the older son. Your life may look really respectable and righteous, but your righteousness is hiding a heart that's full of resentment and sin. Without repentance, both ways lead to judgment. It's not as if God is saying, just by virtue of being kind of down and out and an overt sinner, you have more favor with God. That's not it. It's sinners who draw near to hear Jesus, who repent and believe, who are saved. And so whether you're wearing your sin on your sleeve or whether you're hiding your sin behind a veneer of self-righteousness, the message is the same. You need to repent And God rejoices over the repentant. All of us need salvation, whether we're prodigals or we're pious. We need to hear the good news that God's grace is greater than our sin and shame. That's why we sang that first song. Grace that is greater than all our sin. We need to hear that our righteousness won't save us. And the fact that we're not as bad as the other guy will get us nowhere with the Lord. There's only one way to be part of God's family. It's to humble yourself. To admit that you're as great a sinner as all the rest. That your sin condemns you before God. That he be right to judge you. But that he's provided Christ to save you. We need Jesus. Jesus is the one who, though he was righteous, was numbered among the transgressors. He was willing to be counted as a sinner for our sake. And so we must all come and receive the grace of the compassionate Father. We need to draw near to Christ and be received by him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we so thank you for this good news that you rejoice at the repentant. We don't have to earn our way and we can't earn our way into your family. But we can be forgiven and declared righteous by faith in Jesus. Father, what glorious, great depths of compassion are in you and are revealed in Christ. We pray that you would give us eyes to see this morning. I pray for those here who don't yet know you, Father, that you would save them, that they would come to know your compassion, that they would enter into the joy of repentant and forgiven children of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.